Yeah, I'll be reading the scripture for us this morning. Uh, John chapter 1, verse 19 through 29. You can uh, follow along either uh, on the screen or in the phone. But let me go ahead and read this. It says, And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, Then uh, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to, to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of the one crying, crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they have been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing? If you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet, John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins and if you can um, read with me this, the grass withers, the flowers fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Keep going. We will do our quick sermon for today. So if you can welcome me, God, we thank you. Good morning. Thanks for uh, having me here today. Really excited to be with you. Um, my name is Keith Snow. I'm a pastor down in North Florida in the Jacksonville area, um, Cross Creek Church PCA in St. John's, Florida. And um, me and my wife Kristen first met Paula Megan probably about 15 years ago as seminary students at Reformed Theological Seminary in Orlando. We were members of the same church together there. We were in the same small group. This was even before kids, you know, so we were, we were good friends back then. It's been fun as we've kind of gone on our own journeys just to kind of track with them and and see what how God has been using them and their ministry. And, and it's been great to watch King's Cross Church uh, happen, and, and it's been fun to, to see it from a distance. So I'm really excited to be with you today and see you guys uh, up close, get to know you a little bit. Um, and what we've done is my family has swapped places with the Mays this week. So they're at our home, and we're at their home, and he's preaching back at Cross Creek in Florida this morning. Um, Unfortunately, half of my family is homesick, as, as you heard earlier. Uh, so they were, uh, my wife is home with our two younger ones. We have four little ones, uh, ages 11, 11, 9, and 6. So uh, half of them are sick at the moment. So we're just uh, keeping them in prayer. Um, so back at uh, Cross Creek over the last few weeks for the Advent season, we've been working through John chapter 1. Um, you know, the season of Advent was all about longing and anticipating uh, the coming of Christmas, right? And in the season of Advent, the weeks leading up to Christmas, uh, it's, it's to sort of look back and, and remember what it was like for God's people before the first coming of Christ. And it was also a season to, uh, for us to really look ahead and, and realize that we also are, are in a season of longing and anticipation because we live in a world of darkness and of brokenness and we're longing for Christ's second coming. We're longing for him to return. And as we were unpacking that, we were working our way through John chapter 1. And then um, here in this section, it's really good uh, tying it into the Christmas theme, the, the coming of Christ. He's finally arrived. 
And uh, for most Americans, you know, it's, it's after December 25th, and so we think that Christmas is over, it's history, we've moved on. Uh, but actually, sort of, if you look at the traditional calendar, um, Christmas was a 12-day season. That's why we have that song that I won't sing for you, because uh, it'll get stuck in your head. But the 12 days of Christmas actually starts on December 25th, and it's meant to be a whole, almost couple weeks of, of celebrating um, the Christmas season and the Christmas theme. Um, and so today, I want us to continue to do that. As we look at this, this interesting character in John chapter 1, John the Baptist. He's always a fun guy to look at. He's just so unique, uh, such an interesting personality. And really what I want us to see here uh, are two aspects of his character, two aspects of his personality that we don't often think of as going together. But when we look at John the Baptist, we see these two things going together so well. Um, and that is that he is both extremely humble, but he's also extremely bold. And the reason I want to talk about that is because that's something that, that Jesus uh, does in us. That's also something that the Spirit is at work in His people to do, to, to cultivate humility in us, but also to cultivate a boldness, a holy boldness. So the first thing I want to talk about is the fact that Jesus makes us humble. Jesus makes us humble. And this um, passage, if you know the story, what's going on is that John the Baptist is this, is this preacher. He's a popular preacher out there in the wilderness, in the desert. And uh, he's causing quite a stir. because he's, he's proclaiming all these things about the Messiah. There's multitudes coming out to hear what this unique figure has to say. He's preaching a message of repentance and baptism. And he's just, he's just causing a stir. He's making waves. People from all over are coming out to see him. And the result is it's making the Jewish leaders nervous, the leaders in Jerusalem, because they, you know, they don't know who this guy is, what's he up to, what's his agenda. You know, and anytime there's talk of a Messiah, uh, there's always the, the, the risk that, that you're going to make Rome mad because Rome was the, was the, were the ones in authority over the Jew, Jewish people, right? And if you start talking about a Messiah king who's going to come and overthrow uh, the, the overrulers and set God's people free, you know, that's, that's charged language, that's political talk. And these Jewish leaders in Jerusalem, they didn't want to get in trouble with Rome. You know, they, want, you know, they didn't want Rome coming after them to say, who is this guy, you know, and that kind of thing. And so the leaders in Jerusalem sort of send this team out to investigate. They go out to find out who is this John the Baptist guy? What's he up to? What's his agenda? What's he saying? And it says here in verse 19, this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. So right off the bat, they want to know, are you the Messiah? Are you claiming to be the Messiah figure, this this promised one that has been promised for centuries to come and deliver God's people. And he says, no, I'm not, I'm not the Messiah. He has no problem denying that. So then in verse 21, they ask him, well, what then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Now, what are they talking about there? You know, Elijah was a prophet in the Old Testament. And Malachi 4 says that there would be another prophet that would come like unto Elijah who would be similar to Elijah in a lot of ways. You know, he would wear rough clothing, he would go out beyond the wilderness, that kind of thing. And this figure would be a forerunner to the Messiah. And so when they say, are you Elijah, that what they mean is, are you this Elijah figure that's to come, the forerunner to the Messiah? He says, no, I'm not that. So they go on. They're sort of going through the list. Are you the prophet? Here they're referring to Deuteronomy chapter 18. 
which talks about a figure that's going to come help Israel. This figure is called the prophet. Now, there was a lot of debate about who this figure was. Was this the same person as the Messiah? Was this the same person as the Elijah figure? Or was this a third person that was going to be on the scene? There were a lot of debate about who the identity of this person was. But they ask him, are you that, are you that person? And he says, no. Now, what I want us to notice here before we move on is that, you know, all of their attention is focused on John the Baptist. They want to know, who are you? Who are you? What's your identity? Who, what are you all about? And what we see from John the Baptist is just a refreshing humility. He's basically saying, just stop looking at me. It's not about me. Don't look to me. Look somewhere else. This would have been a radical humility, even in that time. Did you know that, you know, we're used to talking about humility as a good thing, as a virtue. But in the ancient world, humility was not considered a good thing. Humility was demeaning. Humility was something for slaves. It was made, it was, humility was a virtue, was a characteristic of the, of the lowest of the low, of the meek. And so humility was not something that you would want to be branded with. You would rather others bow before you. you your goal would be for you to be lifted up. That, that's, that would be what would be the value in that culture and in that society. And yet here's John not uh, asking for praise. He's, he's deflecting it. It would not be hard to imagine him saying, sure, yes, yes, fine. Uh, I'm whoever you want me to be. As long as you listen to my message, as long as you do what I say, you know, I can be that. I can be the Elijah guy. I can be the prophet. You know, whatever, whatever it is, you know, just follow after me. He could have capitalized on his popularity to build a following, but he didn't. He's basically saying, I'm nobody special. Don't look, don't look at me. Now, by the way, was John right? Was he right about his identity? No. He actually got it wrong. In Matthew 11, Jesus is talking about John the Baptist. And he says in Matthew eleven nine, 9, what, what then did you go out to see, a prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. Jesus Christ himself said, of all people born of women, which is pretty much everyone, right? This is the greatest man who had ever lived up to that point. He's saying John the Baptist is an important figure. He is great. And he is the Elijah figure, the prophet, the forerunner, the one who has come to proclaim my arrival, to make uh, my path clear. But John didn't see himself that way. Why not? Because he just wasn't focused on himself. He just wasn't concerned with it. You know, we live in a culture that doesn't get that. We live in a culture that's so all about the self. It's so self-consumed. Google, you may know, has a book database. There's over 5 million books in this database that have been published since the year 1500. And you can go on this database and you can search for a particular word to see uh, a graph of the usage of a word over time. 
when this word has been used more, pop, uh, more popularly, more often, and over time when it's not, and used not as often. And there's one uh, journalist who was discussing the rise of individualism in our society. And he noticed that in the past 50 years, individualistic words and phrases have increasingly overshadowed communal words and phrases. What's he mean? He means that uh, individualistic words in the last 50 years have skyrocketed in our language, in our publishing, in our communication. Words like self, personalized, I come first, I can do it myself. This is the, the air that we breathe now. This is the culture that we live in. We're told about how great and wonderful we are. And in contrast, communal words have been on the decline at the same time. Words like community, share, band together, common good. We've gotten away from the idea of, of communal life. And we've become more and more and more about the individual, about ourselves, about putting ourselves first, about how great we are. This is especially relevant as we head into the new year. I read an advertisement from a fitness gym. The ad was called The Year of You. And the ad said this. The new year is right around the corner and you're either going to own the year or the year is going to own you. It's 100% your choice. It's in your hands. That's the first thing. Simply by taking all of the responsibility and putting it on your shoulders, you become empowered, this, this ad says. And then it goes on to say, Next, you take that feeling of empowerment, of invincibility, the feeling that you can run through a wall, and you take action. You take action like you've never taken action before. You become prolific. You become consistent. And you let no obstacle stand in your way, no matter what. No more pity parties. No more whining about anything. You are in control. You. Now, that's really effective advertising for a fitness gym, right? Come on down to our gym and spend your money this new year, right? Because you can do it. You can have a new you. You can be a new you. You can take charge of your life. You are in control. You are in control. And of course, you know, we want to recognize that there is such thing as individual responsibility, right? But at the same time, what our culture is constantly preaching to us is that we are our own saviors, that we can fix ourselves, that we have it within our power to change ourselves, to refrain from our, our vices and to, and to build up our virtues and just bootstrap it until we become better people, that we can form our character. And in the new year, you know, that it's New Year's resolutions time. And we every year, we delude ourselves into thinking that this time we've got it. This time I'm going to turn over a new leaf. I'm going to wake up when I want to wake up and I'm going to have my morning routine and I'm going to have a packed day full of productivity and I'm going to uh, go on dates with my spouse and I'm going to do good things with my kids and all that. And then a couple weeks into the year, it all unravels, right? And then we, well, I'll get it next year. Do you believe that you have the power within yourself, that it's all, that, that it's all about you? John the Baptist did not think that. Why not? You know, we in our culture would look at him and look at that mentality and say, well, maybe he has low self-esteem. Maybe, maybe he's just looking down on himself. And the, the answer is no. He's not looking down on, on himself. He's just not looking at himself. He's looking at Jesus. This group that came to find out who he is finally asks him in verse 22, well, who are you? You know, it's like they're saying, we need to give an answer to those that sent us. So who are you? What do you say about yourself? 
And he said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. He says simply, I am a voice. I'm just a voice. Like my, my voice, my life, everything that I am is simply pointing you to someone else. I'm an arrow pointing you in another direction. And the word Lord that he uses there is the Hebrew word Yahweh. It's God's personal name. And he's quoting Isaiah 40 there. Or Isaiah 40 talks about making a highway or a pathway to prepare for God's arrival. What John the Baptist is saying is that I'm here to help prepare the way for God himself, that God is coming. God is coming. Get ready. What are you doing looking at me? God himself is coming to make things right. That's what he was looking at. That's what he was focused on. And a little farther down in verse 26, he says, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. In every culture, there are tasks that nobody wants to do. They're just so low and demeaning and disgusting. In that culture, that task was the untying of the sandal. Why? Because it, it was a, a, a world in which you walked around in the desert in sandals for days or weeks. And to come into someone's home and to have your sandals removed would not have been a pleasant experience, right? They would have been dirty and, and smelly. And so there were actually rules in that society that said, if you were of any importance, if you had any kind of social standing, you, you, no one can make you do that task. That was just a reserve for the lowest of the low because it was so disgusting. Now what John the Baptist could have said, if he was just talking about standing before some great king, he could have said, you know, I'm only worthy to untie his sandal. But he didn't say that. He said, I'm not even worthy to untie this one's sandal. What he's saying is the one that's coming is so great He's beyond any other king or Caesar or leader than you've ever seen. So great is he that I'm not even worthy to do this task. I'm not even worthy to untie his sandal. It's not that Joe, that John had low self-esteem. In fact, having a low view of yourself is really just another form of pride. You know, we think about pride as puffing yourself up and thinking great of yourself. But if you're constantly focused on your shortcomings, on your weaknesses, on your failings, if you're constantly focused on how other people view you and, and, and ways in which you disappoint your loved ones and those around you, that's just another form of pride too. Why? Because you're still self-obsessed. You're still self-focused. And so it's not that John was doing that. He wasn't down on himself. He just wasn't thinking about himself. As C.S. Lewis said, humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. To be humble doesn't mean that you think that you have no value and that you just are down in yourself. Humility is just something that you're just not concerned with it. You're focused on others, you're focused on God, you're focused on those around you. That's true humility. Uh, when President George H.W. Bush passed away a few weeks ago, uh, one of the recurring things that you heard was just how humble of a man he was. And last week, a news story came out revealing that he had been um, secretly exchanging letters with a Filipino boy for a decade. This was a child that he had sponsored through the ministry, Compassion International. And in, in the first of his many letters to this boy, he, he wrote this. I am an old man, 77 years old, 
but I love kids. And though we have not met, I love you already. I live in Texas. I will write you from time to time. Good luck, G. Walker. And he signed his name G. Walker. He kept his identity secret from this young man. And they exchanged letters over about 10 years. Uh, he even uh, helped sponsor this boy's uh, meals and education. Although he would occasionally drop hints about his identity. For example, in one letter he said, I got to go to the White House this Christmas. Um, and, and, you know, it wasn't until this boy graduated high school and left this program that, that he found out who his pen pal was. That it was President George H.W. Bush. And he was stunned. He had no idea. Now, put yourself in, in George Bush's shoes. I mean, if we're honest with ourselves, how many of us would lead with that information? Do you know who I am? I'm a former president. I matter. I'm important. I'm somebody. You should be thankful that I'm taking the time to write these letters to you from across the world. But no, he, just, he wasn't concerned with that. It wasn't important to him. He made it not about himself, but about this other person. This is the work of Jesus in us. Jesus wants us to know that it's not that we don't have value. We have so much value that he was willing to give his life for us. And he humbles us in that. Well, there's another fascinating side to John the Baptist that I want you to see. He's not only humble, but he's bold. Jesus not only humbles us, he emboldens us. He gives us this incredible confidence that's based in him. John the Baptist is known for his unbelievably bold personality. You see it here in verses 25 and 26. They ask him, why are you baptizing if you're neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? What they're saying is, who do you think you are? If you're not one of these important figures, who gives you the right? Who gives you the authority to do what you're doing? And what you've got to realize is what, what John was doing was incredibly radical. He was doing something that, that had never been done before. In those days, uh, people didn't typically get baptized. The only people that got baptized were, were Gentiles, non-Jews, who were converting to the Jewish faith. And they would be they would actually baptize themselves. They would self-administer. And it was their way of saying, you know, I am unclean, but now I'm, I'm becoming clean because I'm coming into the fold. I'm coming into the faith. But here's John the Baptist saying, look, I don't care who you are. I don't care if you're a religious type. I don't care if you're a non-religious type, if you're a Jew, if you're a Gentile, if you're a pagan. I don't care if you're a moral person or if you're a person whose life is a complete mess. We all need to repent. We all need repentance. We all need cleansing. And so his message was radical. And he was saying, by the way, everyone needs to get baptized. Jew and Gentile alike. And he didn't let them do it themselves. He, he made them have him do it. He was the one doing the baptism. So this whole thing, this whole message, and this whole uh, act, activity of baptism was, was new and radical and bold. He was challenging everything and everyone around him. And it's funny, too, when, he, when they say, well, why then do you baptize? His answer is, in verse 26, I baptize with water, which really isn't really an answer. They're saying, why do you baptize? And he says, I baptize. He's basically saying, I, I baptize, I'm just, I'm doing it. And, and his message to them is, I don't have to give you a reason. I don't have to answer to you. I answer to somebody else. 
He has this incredible boldness in the face of, of these, uh, this establishment, these leaders. In the old uh, 1960s biblical epic movie, The Greatest Story Ever Told, John the Baptist is played by Charlton Heston. And, um, you know, it's great because he's just going around yelling, repent, repent, repent to everyone. And, you know, they come out to see him and he's, he's like throwing soldiers, you know, down and saying repent. But they, they overtake him. They, they, you know, the story of John the Baptist, they take him in to see uh, King Herod. And in this movie, there's a scene that kind of really illustrates his personality. Uh, he's standing before Herod and he says to him, that's your brother's wife. Repent. I mean, just that boldness before the king. And Herod says, you'll die for that. And John the Baptist says, well, you'll go to hell for that. And Herod says, well, I can have you killed. And John the Baptist says, that will only set me free. He just, he doesn't care. He's not afraid. He just, he just calls it out. He calls it like he sees it. He has this incredible boldness. Why? Because he was secure in his identity in Christ. He knew he, who he was. He didn't care what people thought. And I love that mentality. If you kill me, you'll only free me. What if we were that bold about our faith? What if we were that fearless about speaking the, the gospel, about speaking the name of Jesus? Now, you guys live in the D.C. area. I'm not saying that you should go uh, yell in the face of politicians to go repent, uh, unless the Holy Spirit leads you to do that. Um, but as, as simply as just sharing our story with other people, our story of, of what Jesus meant to us, or what the role of church has been in our life. It's incredible that that, that that requires a great amount of boldness in our culture, in our setting, in our society. You know, I'm sure that you guys have been tracking um, in the recent weeks the story about this, these Christians in China who have been persecuted for their faith. Um, I want to show you guys just a short video that just shows some of what they've been going through over there, just in case you're not familiar. Take a look. Safety at risk uh, because many of these church members over there are 
being arrested, detained, separated from their families uh, for, for worshiping, for naming the name of Jesus Christ. And that's something that probably none of us have experienced. And it's hard for us to get our minds around that. And yet, what a reminder that that's what Christianity is. That's what it means to be the church. Uh, just that, that incredible boldness. No fear. If you, if you kill me, you'll, you'll only free me. Bring it on, world. What do you have? Oh, that we would have that kind of a boldness in our lives. At the end of that video, they're actually reciting one of my favorite, a uh, portion of one of my favorite documents from church history, the Heidelberg Catechism, the first question. And you know, sometimes you may be familiar with this, and sometimes we hear this, and it's so rote and routine. But imagine if, if you were them, these words, you be, they, they better mean something to you. You better believe what you're saying when you confess these words. It says, what is your only comfort in life and in death? That I, with body and soul, both in life and in death, am not my own, but belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who, with his precious blood, has fully satisfied for all my sins and delivered me from all the power of the devil and so preserves me that without the will of my Father in heaven, not a hair can fall from my head. Yea, that all things must work together for my salvation. Wherefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready henceforth to live unto him. Do you truly believe that? Do you believe that you belong to a sovereign Lord who watches over you, that has you in his providential care, and that even when suffering comes your way, or, or maybe death even comes your way, that he's still got you, that he's still faithful to you. What if someone asks you or me that same question that they asked John the Baptist? Who are you? Who are you? How would you answer? If we're honest, most of us would answer that uh, in a way that has to do with how we're viewed in the world. You know, our identity comes from, well, how do other people see me? Or how do I see myself? And we have all these uh, factors that, that, that make up our identity, whether it's our vocation or, or our roles in our families. Well, the Bible tells us that we were created for glory. We were made to uh, know glory, to know the glory of God, to rule with God. But we lost that glory when we turned our backs on God. We decided we'd be better off without him. And the Bible tells us that we've been hungry for glory ever since, and that we search for glory and for meaning and affirmation anywhere we can find it. And so we look for our spouses and for our family members and for our jobs and everything we can to give us affirmation, to tell us that we matter, to tell us that we are somebody. Who are you? Well, what if, instead of looking at all those other things, including what we think about ourselves, what if we were like John the Baptist? What if our identity was more about who God says that we are? What if we were so utterly secure and grounded in that that we had just an incredible boldness and rest? John the Baptist wasn't concerned about uh, his identity. Jesus had great things to say about him, but he just wasn't concerned with it. How do we get there? How do we get that? How do we get there? Verse 29. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away 
the sin of the world. How can you find the glory that you were created to know? It's not by seeking out glory for yourself. It's by beholding the Lamb. It's by beholding the one that you were created to know. Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Jesus Christ, the one that, you're, that, you were, that made you, that created you, and that you were made to know, to know personally and to know intimately. He is the great one. He is the majestic one. He is the one full of glory. And Christmas tells us this one who is all glorious, that he emptied himself of his glory in order that we would know the glory that we were created for. That the one that is high and, and majestic made himself low, that he humbled himself so that we could be raised up, raised up out of the darkness, that we could be given new life in him. John the Baptist didn't know this when he said it, but his words in this chapter actually were foreshadowing something that happens later in the Gospel of John. When he said that there is one coming, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. Later in John, we read that the night before Jesus Christ was to die, he shocked his friends, his disciples, by doing what? By getting down on his knees. And what did he do? He began to untie their sandals. And not only untie their sandals, but then to go on and proceed to wash their dirty feet. And his friends said, no, 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 Jesus, what are, you, what are you doing? This isn't right. But Jesus said, look, I need to do this. You need to understand why I came. You need to understand what I came here to do, what I came here for. I came to make myself low so that you could be lifted up high. That's why he came. That's what Christmas is for. The great king doing what only a slave should do. The lamb who goes to the cross, giving up his life in order to pay for our sins and save us. In the Christmas carol, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, we sing the words, Mild, he lays his glory by. He's mild, he's humble, and he lays his glory by. That means he, he, he does it willingly. No one forces Jesus to that manger or to that cross. He voluntarily and willingly did those things for you because he loves you. He laid it by for you. Behold the Lamb. See Jesus doing all that he did for you, and it will change your life because you'll know that you have his eternal, unlimited love and approval. Brennan Manning said this, define yourself radically as one beloved by God. Every other identity is an illusion. Someone asks you, who are you? There's a good answer. I am one loved by God. I am a child of God. I belong to Jesus. That's who I am. That's my identity. I'm secure in that. And God loves me in Christ. I want to close with this short clip um, that came out on the internet this past week. And it showed a little boy getting an early and unexpected Christmas present. Take a look. <coughs>
shows us that we have been given the greatest gift that we could ever imagine. That in Christ we have the embrace of the Father, the loving embrace of the Father. I pray that you would rest in that, that you would bask in the Father's love for you as you head into the new year. May you just have an incredible peace and rest as you receive and rest in Christ alone and his love for you. That's what you have. Your Father loves you. Don't doubt it. If you ever doubt it, look to the manger at Christmas. Look to the cross at Easter. Look to the empty tomb. God loves you. He's with you. He is for you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love for us. We confess to you our own um, propensity to stray from you, to turn away from you, to seek our identity and, and to seek fulfillment from all the other things that are around us. But we know deep down that those things don't really satisfy, that our, our hearts were made for you. They are restless until they find their rest in you. Lord, I pray that you would give us rest as we head into the new year. That we would have a rest that comes from knowing Christ, from knowing the Father's love. Thank you for loving us as you do. I pray that you would humble us and also embolden us as we look to Christ. We see that we do have value. We have so much value that, that, that you went to the ends of the earth to save us and to rescue us. And I pray that that would be what would embolden us, that you would send us out into the world to point others to you, to, to just exude your love to the world, to those that you put in our path. And I pray that you would build up your church, build up King's Cross Church, uh, knit them together in love and unity, and send them out to reach this community for the sake of Jesus Christ. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray.